Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Following the terrible attack on the synagogue in Pittsburgh, I spoke with John Zogby, American pollster and author, We Are Many, We Are One, Neo-Tribes and Tribal Analytics in the 21st Century. He's really talking about how our society is divided into tribes. And what could that cause? I asked John about that. Julius Gray is one of Canada's most prominent human rights and constitutional lawyers in Montreal. He represented the Sikh student who was wearing a kirpan to school and is representing a Muslim woman who was ordered out of court by the judge for wearing her hijab. Julius Gray is talking about the kind of society we live in today. He says it's like 1984, as in George Orwell. I spoke with Adam Hertzman of the Jewish Federation of Greater Pittsburgh about the monstrous attack and the murders of 11 human beings at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh yesterday. Australia was very much like Canada for many years, but these days Australian society is not really quite the same. Australia has charted a different path. They have the Australian Values Test, which allows the government to revoke a visa and deport people who commit crimes. Australia is refusing to ratify the UN Compact for Safe, Orderly and Regular Migration. And Australia repealed its national carbon tax. Brad Batten is a member of parliament in Australia. He spoke to me about all of this. John Zogby is one of the most respected pollsters in the United States. He has uh, been in the polling business for decades. It's johnzogbystrategies.com. He's also the author of We Are Many, We Are One, Neo-Tribes and Tribal Analytics in the 21st Century America. America subdivided into tribal realities and zones. John writes, we choose the tribe to which we wish to belong. The neo-tribes, including the God Squad, Go With the Flow, the Happy Hedonists, or Hedonists, the Persistence, the Dutiful, and the Creators. The question is, is America fractured? And does that lead to the kind of horrific situations like the Pittsburgh Synagogue Assault, the Pipe Bomber, and uh, the political antagonism that's taking place. John, I always appreciate speaking with you. Thank you for taking the time today. Thank you, Roy. Let me begin by expressing my horror and sympathy for the congregation, for the city of Pittsburgh, really for every human being um, uh, ha- that, that, that has to be just horrified by, by this terrible thing. Yeah, it, it is, and it, it weighs on everyone. Um, Regardless of where you live, who you are, who you associate with, it weighs on people. This is something that that you don't understand, don't want to understand, but you certainly have to live with and deal with and expect there may be more on the way. We have the pipe bomber situation. We have the school mm-hmm. shootings that take place. Is there when you when you divide your, your 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 the United States into tribes, the American people into tribes, which you've done in your book? Uh, this is not done with the with the intent to pursue these individuals, people who are off the scale mm-hmm. uh, violent. But it does point to various and sundry tribes, and one of the tribes I, surmi- I, I submit is the tribe of violence that seems to have um, surfaced, particularly in the last year or so. What do you say? It's always been with us. Um, you know, in the United States, we have a very violent history, you know, from the Hatfields and McCoys to 
revolutions and civil wars to just uh, uh, street gangs and, and lynchings and, and, and that. It's, it's a part of our culture, but it's, it's a small group of people, a, uh, a very small group of people that are driven to perform these acts. But these acts always seem to be enabled in a broader atmosphere where the rhetoric is at fever pitch, the leadership is either absent, as it was prior to our Civil War, or enabling, as arguably it is now. Um, uh, a lot of the, you know, there are the better angels of our nature, and there are the worse angels of our nature. And right now, I'm afraid we live in an atmosphere that's encouraging uh, that tiny uh, group of people um, to to dominate the news and the headlines. I do blame the media as well, frankly. So this uh, this individual, this Robert yeah. Bowers, uh, may very well, and the pipe bomber as as well, but Bowers is the one we're focusing on today. He could have felt because of what was being what's surrounding him, and he's interpreting in his sick mind as greenlighting him to take some kind of action that he felt was necessary for him to take. And again, in his sick frame of mind, there was a, there's some, some, uh, some ancillary uh, events taking place that allow him to feel like, well, I have to take some action myself. Whether he's sick, he, and I'm sure he is, or evil. Or evil. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the two crossed over. But yeah. Uh, he operates in an atmosphere where the reward now is fame. Mm-hmm. Um, infamy, to be sure, but it is fame. So who is this fellow? What do we know about him? Aside from all the hateful speech and, and rhetoric, he's a guy who has not been allowed on the the major faces of of social media. And so apparently there is room on the dark web or a a, a website or blog, whatever it is called, The Gap, that features these kinds of people, um, just as it features perverts and people who make snuff movies and uh, people who are looking to to join uh, ISIS or Al-Qaeda. The problem is the, the technology now enables these isolated, terrible people to operate in a network. Mm-hmm. And, and that yet, if, we, if you were to talk to them, they would probably tell you they're part. They're a member of a tribe that you that you would describe in your book. Oh, no, we're, we're we're part of that one. They're not, but they may assign themselves uh, the uh, sort of um, membership in in one of these tribes. Uh, sure, they could very well. And let me explain that the tribes I've identified, uh, I've let folks identify themselves. They, so there were no. Um, uh, pre-arranged, uh, preset categories. These were kind of from the bottom up through survey research. And they assigned themselves um, to tribes based on attributes and aspirations. And the point of my book actually evolved into not really what separates us, but actually um, uh, the possibilities for crossing over and building bridges between these tribes. And that ultimately is how the the title of the book, We Are Many, We Are One, Mm -hmm. emerged. Uh, So we can be as different as the God Squad, 
you know, people driven by their faith, mm-hmm. or the happy hedonists who are driven by fun. But there are crossover possibilities. There are languages and messages and places to gather where those troops, those those, uh, those two groups, and the other groups as well can intersect. My point in my book is, with leadership, um, with loftier goals, we can enable building bridges. I think what we have right now is the exact opposite of that. Right. I, I remember the first time we talked, and the first time I heard the title of your book, I thought, I, I like this, because it really describes the society we've either become, or we're mm-hmm. becoming, or we always were, and you've identified. But at the same time, I saw, I thought, there's a, there's a potential dark crowd here that may emerge and assign themselves a position within one of the tribes that John Zogby has identified. So, John, how do you take the information about the, the tribal reality of U.S. society and, and, make, it, and, and make it useful? How do, how do you use it to, in, in a positive way? We have found what we call tribal border crossings. This is where um, members of the various tribes, including those that really are divergent tribes, um, actually have um, areas where they cross over. In some instances, uh, where a member of one tribe, like the creators, who are entrepreneurial and, uh, and artistic and so on, very, very liberal, um, intersect actually with another group that we call the land of the free who are rugged uh, the john wayne types uh, don't tread on me which is a theme i uh, want to be left alone and hate government and yet they share kind of a a libertarian uh... uh... sensibility with each other uh... the the happy hedonists are all about fun uh, and, and adventure. The God Squad tend to be conservative and simple in their lives, not uh, focused on things. And yet, when we ask various groups, what keeps you up at night? The happy hedonists will say global warming, uh, and the, the God Squad will say man's stewardship of God's earth. Hmm. That kind of intrigues me, because they're both saying the same thing yeah, different they ways. They are. How, you said there earlier there be a way to find a commonality there because there are hundreds of ways of keeping them uh, away from each other, right? Now, I'm actually thinking about people I know who might fit into different categories that you've described. Um, you said earlier in our conversation, we have about three minutes here, you, you said earlier the media bears some responsibility for what's mm-hmm. going on, for the attitude that exists, the negatives that exist in American society. Uh, how, how is media um, culpable to a certain extent, or entirely. They have a responsibility, obviously, to cover the news. And, the, you know, 24-hour cable have news holes, and they have to cover them. But there can be such a thing as, as over-coverage, too much speculation, uh, too much hype. Yeah, uh, earlier in the week, you know, you had the, the pipe bombs that were being delivered uh, and mailed. Uh, and yet... There was a constant speculation as to who it is, constant coverage of leaders of both political parties, Republicans and Democrats, neither of whom had any idea who it may have been or what it was all about, blaming each other. 
and the media playing that over and over and over again, when in reality, both the media uh, and the political leaders could very well have said, let's leave it up to the FBI, and we'll come back on this story periodically when we get updates by those who are actually investigating this and finding out the truth. Yeah. Sometimes I think um, media are it's like the, 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 the house with the red light above the door. Come on yeah. in. Come on in. And you don't really don't want that house next door to you. Anyway. Balloon boy. We all remember that one. Yeah. Uh, are you concerned, uh, your knowledge or your understanding of society and people's, um, you know, what's going to happen, what's going on? You're worried that there'll be repeats of this kind of behavior because of the behavior that we've, we've witnessed? Sadly, I, I think there will be. There's copycat behavior. There are people who obviously get past law enforcement, although law enforcement, I think, is, is doing an excellent job on a 7-24 and 24 basis. But in the medium to longer haul, I think we're going to be fine. I think we'll, we have to evolve new leaders and new systems. And uh, um, that that are better prepared to to tone down the rhetoric. And as you know from previous books that I've written that we've talked about, I'm pretty high on millennials. You are, yes. A young group coming up who I think have absolutely no patience for any of this nonsense. Yeah. Um, another very sad situation turned into a positive. The Parkland shooting, horrible shooting as well in uh southern florida in the miami area and those kids are pounding the pavement they want change um and those are the better angels of our nature so i I mean i am encouraged but in the meantime uh just to watch this this terrible kind of suffering that people have to go through for no other reason than that you know another sick person got past law enforcement John, always good talking to you. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you, Thank you. Take care. John Zogby. Julius Gray is one of Canada's most prominent human rights and constitutional lawyers. He's in Montreal. As I mentioned to you, he represented the Sikh student uh, rewearing the Kirpander school. Mr. Gray is also representing the Muslim woman who was ordered to remove her hijab in court by a Quebec judge. A superior court then ruled that the, the, other, the original judge was wrong. Uh, I was just reading about uh, Mr. Gray writing about the tensions between ethnic and nationalist groups seeking to tilt the scales in favor of their particular group. It's kind of like what, almost like what we were talking to John Zogby about. And Mr. Gray argues in a Montreal Gazette op-ed that our society is beginning to resemble that of George Orwell's 1984. Mr. Gray, I always enjoy speaking with you. These are very, very difficult day, very difficult weekend for, for everyone who has a heart. Uh, and thank you for taking the time. And what do you mean we're what do you, what, we're beginning to resemble a society of, of George Orwell? Well, I think we're beginning to resemble a society of, of uh, George Orwell in in other ways. But it leads to the, this type of thing too, in part, and that is uh, the political correctness, the the uh, what they call in French the pensée unique, the only way to think, means that certain things cannot be expressed verbally very easily if you're frustrated, if you're angry, you're going to lose your job, you're going to lose everything if you say what you mean. And uh, in a few individuals, it uh, translates itself by this type of total, by a tantrum. Now, 
it's you it's easy to say that it's insanity and that you can't do anything about insanity it is insanity of course but not necessarily in the legal sense uh, he may still be legally responsible he doesn't uh, fulfill the requirement that the law imposes of not knowing what he's doing. It's obviously behavior that is beyond all norms. But I think our society, with the publicity, with the easy accessibility of guns, uh, with uh, uh, the repression of certain types of thinking altogether, makes it perhaps a little more likely than less likely that from time to time these things will happen. Of course, they've been happening very regularly. And, you know, we blame the United States. We had events in Toronto last year, so and so. It happens all over the place, and Paris, of course, has been exposed. But the United States with guns uh, appears to be a prime place for that. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the 1984, the book in that context, or even the movie. Uh, Big Brother is watching, so you can't say what's on your mind, or you feel you Well, can't. they have a new language. Remember, they yeah. have new speak. They have a language which leaves out the possibility of saying certain types of things, and we're close to that. We're, we're doubts about certain types of equality or, 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 or certain types of, 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 of programs and so on can no longer be seriously expressed. Mm -hmm. So you also wrote about the tensions that exist between ethnic and nationalist groups and you're right, seeking to tilt the scales in favor of their group. Uh, speak to that, please. Well, I think we live in a period when all sorts of jobs and positions are disappearing. There are other jobs that might be appearing, but not very good jobs in service area and so on. But on the whole, uh, public jobs, university jobs and so on are uh, becoming difficult to get. And therefore, every group fights for the interests of its members. Uh, so you have one group determined to have as many women in position, another group as many blacks in position. Other groups, of course, press, uh, want to resist that. And uh, one of the problems is that, of course, one has to provide each individual the fairest possible solution and make sure that it is possible for all of the members of minorities and so on, and, and both genders, to uh, uh, obtain these jobs. But there's absolutely no doubt that our society is one in which the national, ethnic, the lobbies uh, take up an awful lot of place. And you can't blame the lobbies for this. I mean, this is completely out of, uh, uh, outside the norm, as I said. Nevertheless, it's this type of fierce competition which shows that when somebody goes off the rails, he may go off the rails on that subject. Mm -hmm. His hate of the other group may get the better of him. So, so the, the extremists in either group, the ones that are on the extreme fringe uh, are the ones that you ultimately hear about, as we have over the last well, the ones who 36 go hours. Deep end. They're very, very, a very small minority. I mean, it's of course. Uh, very unfair to, to blame uh, uh, all, all nationalists. I mean, I don't like nationalism, but I, I would not be prepared to blame all nationalists for, for this type of thing or all uh, extreme ethnicists mm -hmm. or uh, extreme feminists or masculinists. Not at all. But when you have these categories and when these categories are constantly being measured and talked about and how many of this group and how many of that group and everybody instead of being somebody appears to represent somebody then of those small that small minority that goes off the rail may well go off the rail on that sort of subject the uh, political discord uh, shifts then from disagreement to shouting 
and then, as you say, in the extreme situations, to violence. Now, I'm thinking back, you would be aware of this uh, as well as I. I'm thinking back to Quebec in the 1960s and the 1970s and uh, the emergence of the uh, of the FLQ and then the emergence as a legitimate political party of the Parti Québécois. That caused um, all sorts of emotional responses. We had, uh, prior to the Parti Québécois, there were the raids by the, by the FLQ on uh, on military armories uh, some some military individual soldiers some soldiers were killed and i was on the way to school um and passed you know mail they were blowing up mailboxes i walked past the mailbox mr gray that blew up in sergeant major walter leja's face i was i walked past that about an hour before the incident happened and that's something I'll never forget. And we we lived with those of us who were in Montreal at the time. We lived with these fringe lunatics. They were in our lives every day. And later, Montreal had a number of other incidents. It had perhaps the worst misogynist uh, incident in the Polytechnique, when a that's woman right. student went and killed a large number of female students. We had co- uh, some co- other college things. We had uh, Professor Fabricant going uh, after uh, colleagues because he didn't get. Tenure, it was, uh, or he feared he wouldn't get tenure. That was uh, a uh, typical reaction to the sort of job pressure when a madman appears. Um, the uh, the truth is that we've had these. First of all, I suppose they've always existed, but in recent years, there's been a disturbing number of them. Maybe it's also better reporting. I mean, we had we have them on the front page, whereas in the 1930s, some of them may have been ignored. But on the other hand, I think there is an increase, and I think it's a sort of alienation, the frustration, the sense that uh, as an individual, we don't count anymore, that it's all groups and lobbies and, 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 and uh, various types of uh, 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 rules about how we have to bend. We, we have to be, we have to all be tall and thin. We have to all be uh, uh, of a certain type of uh, opinion and so on, that that leads to uh, destructive uh, frustration. And uh, and uh, once again, let's remember, it's a one in a million thing. It's not, most people will not, no matter how frustrated they are, it's not normal human behavior. But it is uh, a disturbing phenomenon, which I think our types, times foster to some extent. Yeah. Mr. Gray, thank you. I also appreciate speaking with you. It's a pleasure. Julius Gray, constitutional lawyer, human rights lawyer in Montreal. And joining me on the program is Adam Hertzman. He's uh, with the Jewish Federation of uh, Greater Pittsburgh. He's a marketing director. Mr. Hertzman, thank you very much for taking the time today and from all of us in this country, uh, our most heartfelt condolences to the Jewish community in Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh community uh, generally and specifically to the Congregation of the Tree of Life Synagogue. Thank you. It really means a lot. How How is the uh, community, how is the Jewish community in Pittsburgh holding up? Uh, I honestly think we're still in shock, you know, um, Pittsburgh uh, was, and I think still will be, uh, despite this uh, this random act of violence, one of the safest Jewish communities in the United States. But that makes this event uh, all the more shocking to us. Um, it's going to take some time for us to process, but uh, 
I've been really heartened by the support, not just from Jewish Pittsburgh, but from the entire Pittsburgh community. You know, if there's anything that's, that's made me feel better, uh, it's knowing that it really seems to have brought out the best in people. Tell us about the Tree of Life Synagogue and its members and its mission. Uh, Tree of Life, Orla Simcha, is actually a synagogue that was a combination of two synagogues. Um, as with uh, many synagogues in the United States, uh, membership has been declining, and so those synagogues combined. Actually, a few years ago, although I'm no longer a member, I used to be a member of Orla Simcha. Um, it's just a wonderful, warm, welcoming environment. Um, it's a great place uh, to, to come together and bring families. And uh, that the tragedy of this is just incomprehensible. You know, people are talking about the political discourse that is uh, that is present and seems to be getting louder and louder and more and more sharp as you get closer and closer to the uh, midterm elections. And it almost becomes a, a daily fact of life. Uh, how, how much of a how much of a concern do you have about that, and what it might what it led to? And could it could it be a? I'm asking you to speculate, but we're all doing that. We're all wondering whether that could have led to at least partially to what happened yesterday. You know, I honestly don't think that there's one cause that you can point to uh, that that resulted in this terrible tragedy. Um, obviously, we've been seeing a rise in anti-Semitism across the United States and Canada. And uh, there's, uh, I think, you know, lots of things that are contributing to uh, both racism and anti-Semitism in, in our two countries. But I don't really think that you can point to one thing that's, that's the cause of an event like this. I find it so abhorrent that the specter of anti-Semitism is raised Yet again, what have we failed to learn from history and not so distant history? And it's something that I'm sure is on, on the minds of um, and certainly uh, a concern of Jewish communities globally. I actually think that, if I, personally, if I could summarize one thing that we have failed to learn uh, is that we're all a part of one people, one mankind. You know, uh, if you ask pretty much anybody of any religion uh, what's the most central aspect of your religion, it's the preservation of human life and the sanctity of life. Um, and that's true of Judaism. You know, uh, in Judaism, there's almost no rule that you can't break if you're trying to save a life. Um, if you're a Shomer Shabbos, which is to say you don't drive or do work on Shabbat, but, you're, but you need to save a life, you're not only allowed to, but you're required to break the Sabbath in order to do it. And I think we failed to learn that that's true of all peoples. We're all about the importance of life and the global community. Yeah, and we all have a responsibility to um, learn from yesterday and the response today, just listening to you, we have a responsibility to remember what our objective toward one another ultimately is, and you expressed it so well. Absolutely. Mr. Hertzman, thank you so very much. And again, please uh, accept our heartfelt condolences uh, for your community and uh, particularly, again, for the congregation of the Tree of Life Synagogue. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Adam Hertzman, 
from Pittsburgh. Brad Batten is back with us. Thank you very much for taking the time. Let's. We and I talked in the past about the carbon tax in in Australia. We talked about other matters that that, that Australia is engaged in. I know that you have a there's a federal values uh, test that is either legislation or is going to be legislation. Can we start though with the with the carbon tax federally? It was discontinued in 2014 in Australia, was it not? It was. It was introduced and then it was uh, obviously it was taken away and repealed. And the concern, I, I was actually just listening to your introduction then when you had Justin Trudeau talking about now they're implementing effectively a carbon tax effect state by state. And we've had that in Victoria, in Australia, where our state government in Victoria introduced a new tax, effectively a carbon tax on the coal industry. And it tripled 300% times the tax that was already on the industry and what it did was our major energy supplier down here who had our coal plants closed that they just said it was not viable and that was 22 percent of our baseload energy went out of the market with only six months notice that's a risk you're putting obviously canada at and at different provinces across the uh, the country of canada so when you say the word coal to to many it's become a, a dirty word um, and uh, to environmentalists particularly, it's become a, a, a disturbing word. What? And then there's the, the the issue about clean burning coal. What kind of coal plants and what kind of coal was being burned in, in Victoria? Okay. In Victoria, we used brown coal, and then if above the border, so New South Wales and above, used black coal. However, over time, the brown coal, the way it's now burnt, and the carbon emissions from it has reduced dramatically from what it was 10, 15 years ago. There's more technology from Japan coming over to Australia where you can now burn the coal cleaner than it was in the past. Now, that's obviously a positive. Now, yes, we understand over time you want to be changing and looking at what's best for the environment. But two elements of that is, number one, the government's terrible at making that change, and that's probably most governments around the world. Businesses do it best, and... Japan's done it very well with innovation from private enterprises. They're looking at, they want to invest in Australia to try and keep our coal going. But if you're going to take coal out of the market, you've got to have it at a stage when you have base power load. Wind and solar is not providing the base power load. South Australia, our state next door, decided they would get rid of coal and they ended up with two weeks of blackouts last summer. That's what ends up with being a big concern if you want to talk about the effects for families, economy, jobs, that's what happens. You end up with a two-week stint with no power, and we saw major job losses. We saw major plants who required that energy who went out of business. That's a concern, and I said it's one of the concerns you'd have to consider in Canada, particularly if you're going province by province, because you're going to make it unfair and unfair trading partners between different provinces across the country. Well, there's already a, 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 um, a provincial firewall against the carbon tax. I think it's going to be exactly like uh, like Australia's state tax. But there is a firewall that's building, and we keep talking about it, and that's, there are now four provinces that have said they're not going to collect the carbon tax for the federal government, and so along has come Mr. Trudeau with his uh, carbon incentive, uh, whatever, whatever he named it. We talked about it at length yesterday. But that, what, what I... What I'm listening to here, Brad, is that your government in the state of uh, Victoria 
in in over a matter of months said we're closing down the coal industry and 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 that cost how many jobs and and what did it do to your state economy yeah effectively as i said it cut out 22 percent of our base load energy so the effect across the whole state yeah. was automatically we took it's a simple supply and demand the supply was not available anymore demand remained the cost of energy has skyrocketed. So for two and a half years, we've got a state Labor government in Victoria, which is a, a left-leaning government. It's, um, we don't line up exactly with the names of parties uh, with Canada. So it's a left-leaning government based on ideology, put tax on coal, and it affected everyone's family budget. It's affected... We've got businesses here where power bills are at a stage now that they're putting off staff uh, manufacturing plants are closing or looking to go. And it's one thing when they go overseas. It's even worse for us when they start looking into state because they can get cheaper energy when Victoria has traditionally had the cheapest energy in Australia and therefore actually some of the cheapest energy in the world. So the the impact has, has been across the board negative? A hundred percent negative because it wasn't planned to go forward. Now, the energy plant that closed down um, was actually planned to close over a five, between the five, next five to ten years, and they would have looked at either a replacement in that period of time. But this closed so quickly because the government implemented a tax, which, as I said, it was about $250 million tax per annum on this organisation down there. It's a French company that owned it, and they just said, well, we're not going to pay out all this money in tax. If it's not an investment in the future, we won't be hanging around. So they're gone. Now they've gone. Now, how many other states uh, is are are experiencing this the state um, carbon taxes, and and is their experience fairly similar to to the state of Victoria? No, I have to say we've got a lot more sensible states around the country. Um, South Australia, the former government there, uh, they've just had an election in March and changed of, of government. The former government went through a different process rather than tax. They just moved out of coal energy, uh, and however, they run out of that base load. Now, our system is connected, so Victoria is connected to South Australia, um, so we can send power across. Now, we had a reduction in ours, so therefore South Australia, when it was required, they've got a interconnector. That interconnector failed because they needed too much, and that's what created a two-week power supply uh, shortage over in South Australia. So other states around the country, though, uh, they haven't implemented any other taxes in relation to um, energy, and that's why we're seeing businesses uh, moving up to Queensland or if they're moving out of South Australia because they can't take the risk of actually having no power during the summer period. Wow. To be to be to have a complete blackout for two weeks in the summer is insane. It's horrendous. It's horrendous. And, and, I, and I'll actually say it was one of the major reasons uh, a, the Labor government was there for about 16 years in power. And it was one of the major reasons it changed across to a Liberal uh, government, which, as I said, Liberal is conservative over here. Um, so it changed to a Liberal government with uh, Stephen Marshall now as the Premier in Victoria, uh, sorry, over in South Australia. And he's actually working very hard to ensure they can uh, get back on track and get baseload energy uh, and try and grow the businesses back across South Australia. We're talking about developments in Australia that are very dissimilar to uh, to this country. Well, they do have a state carbon tax. But on the national level, Brad, in 2014, the carbon tax was rescinded. And it was rescinded because, as I recall, reading on the, on the government websites, it was detrimental to the national economy. 
It was detrimental to entrepreneurs, it was detrimental to families, and it was detrimental to Australia's position as an international trading nation. How's it worked out in the four years with the, with the absence of the national carbon tax? I think overall across the country, it's been a positive by removing it. We've ensured um, we've got a system where people are comfortable in investing through most of Australia. We've seen, as I said before, about one state doing it, but we've seen now the effect where companies have now security and confidence going forward that nobody's talking about a carbon tax again. They're happy to invest without a concern that there's going to be a massive increase on the cost of business, let alone staffing costs uh, and other um, marketing, etc. But they can invest in the growth of their companies. And employment in Victoria or employment in Australia is actually at record highs. So we've got more people employed now than we've ever had employed. And that's based on the fact that businesses have the confidence to invest in Australia again. And they hadn't had that confidence for a period of time. And is there still responsible action taken toward climate and, and toward the environment? There's always responsible action. Um, and I think every government at every time does it in different ways. And that can be over here. We talk about things like waste. Um, when you uh, Toronto do this actually very well where you have waste to energy, whereas we don't do that over in Australia. In very few locations do we do it. So if you want to talk about pollution, if you want to talk about changes in the climate, I think one of the biggest impacts we have as humans in our own uh, country is the amount of waste that we put to landfill that doesn't necessarily need to go to landfill. If we could remove that, we'd make a major difference in how we affect the pollution, how we affect, our, how we affect the environment. Yeah. Laura, is in the case of Montreal, or they dumped millions of litres of raw human sewage into the St. Lawrence River. That was, a, that was an interesting move. Brad, the, uh, the, the issue of, uh, of immigration, migration, is one that I know is talked about and written about and debated a great deal in Australia. What is the values test about? We want to make sure that when people come to Australia, they understand, and we like to say the Australian way, and I would take a guess you would talk about the Canadian way. We want to talk about, if you come to our country, we have a respect for freedom. We believe that people should have the freedom of speech without being condemned for what they say. We definitely believe in a freedom of religion. It doesn't mean you have to be religious, but it means you have to respect the fact that someone who is religious has that freedom to associate with that religion. Most importantly, we actually have a commitment to the rule of law, our parliamentary democracy, and the equality of men and women across our entire country. They are essential parts of why we end up with the mutual respect across our country. They are essential parts of why we've been able to grow the way we do. And we welcome everybody but you've got to understand when you come here, these are the decisions you come. You've left a country for whatever reason, then you come to our country because you think ours is the best on earth. Well, they're the reasons it's the best on earth. So you must work within those values that we have within our country. Is the values test in place? The values test has been in place for a little while now, and so far with the test that's going through, uh, we've seen a, from what I understand, where Peter Dutton's come out and stated it's a fairly positive change uh, in what's happening with people coming through, just so they understand it. It's, it hasn't changed dramatically. It, it hasn't eliminated anyone from specific religions. It hasn't eliminated anyone from specific countries. What it has done is remind people on the way through that when they get here, that we have English as our language, we have values that respect in our community, and we have the freedoms, whether that's religion or to do as you do or the dignity of the individual. They're very important values in our country. 
And why has Australia chosen not to sign on, not to ratify the UN Pact Compact on on Migration? We think it's very important that we don't sign away our sovereignty. Um, We understand, obviously, the Migration uh, Pact for the UN has some importance, and we're willing to negotiate with that in good faith. And Peter Dutton, who's our minister, would be more than happy to discuss that with the UN going forward to ensure a draft doesn't take away the protection we have on our borders. It doesn't take away our rights to have a decision on who is here and who isn't here. Uh, And this goes now down to not just people who are coming in, but when we make a decision of someone who shouldn't be here, who is uh, on a visa, commits a crime, we should have the right to remove them from our country as well. And they're very important parts of our immigration policies and our migration policies. And we won't sign away those to an organisation that doesn't have our best interests at heart. heart. And I think it's important that if you're going to put anything in place that's got an effect on the whole world, that each individual country can't sign away their own sovereignty of how they deal with immigration, particularly in Australia, where we're lucky. We actually don't have anyone on our borders. Um, Our borders are all ocean, obviously. That's a bit more difficult in other countries, but they need to have the right to say yes and no to who comes in. And when you talk about removing people who break the law, are we talking now uh, people who have a a visa, who've been uh, admitted to to Australia, or made certain commitments about living in Australia, uh, perhaps have uh, successfully dealt with the values test, but nevertheless then wind up committing a criminal act. Are they, are they eligible for or do they actually get deported from Australia? So if you get sentenced to imprisonment for more than 12 months, then you can be deported. Now, some will and some won't. There is circumstances that some don't get deported. However, it does instigate automatically a, an op- option for... T- options for to be deported from the country, and many do get deported during that time. Legislation change coming up will reduce that, which will say if you could have been sentenced for 12 months. And the reason we're changing that is a prime example right at the moment uh, where a person in Victoria um, went to court, got a 12-month sentence, would have been deported, had a long history of crime, would have been deported. However, they went and appealed it, and the appeal judge has ruled that they wouldn't have put a 12-month sentence in place, the previous judge, if they had have known it could have triggered a deportation. So they've reduced that to seven months. That's not fair. We don't end up with a... should never have a two-tier system. If you're Australian or if you're here on a visa, our laws should apply equally. And if that takes or puts at risk you being deported, that is something you should have thought about before committing the crime. Brad, thank you so much for joining us. And I'm sorry we got you up an hour earlier than we said we would. <laughs> No worries, I've got some extra work done. Thank you very much for that, Roy. All right, take good care. Brad Batten, uh, Australian Member of Parliament in uh, Victoria. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.